Okay, welcome back to Monetize Media. I am Kyle Scott and... I'm Jason Zernicki. So today we are doing something a little bit different. Instead of having an interview, it's the middle of summer, a number of potential guests are on vacation, as are we a bit off and on these last couple of weeks. So we thought it'd be a good time to do 10 learnings, 10 actionable insights from our first 10 interviews, a little bit of a midway checkpoint to see some of the early themes and trends that we've identified that you, dear listener, can kind of take with you and implement into your business. We've kind of called these out along the way and thought this would be a good checkpoint to kind of walk through them, talk about them, and then also play some of these clips. These are kind of some of the most important learnings that we've seen, even just in the few small handful of interviews that we've done so far. So wait, is this our first best of show or like your local? radio host goes on vacation and they play the best of? I feel like this would be trying to think of like a mid-level artist doing a best of where they'll have like three of them. Like I think John Cougar Mellencamp, who might be able to support three best of, has three Right. But there are definitely artists that have multi, like I think Third Eye Blind has a second best of. So I'd be cautious about calling this a best of. We'll call it a checkpoint. We'll save our best of for episode 25, maybe. I think it will be deserving of one. Okay. I'll write that down. Okay. So what we've done is we've identified 10 different trends that we've seen over these first 10 interviews. So we're going to name them and we're probably going to break this up into two episodes, part one and part two. So we're going to name them. And then our producer, Cameron, who does an excellent job, is going to play clips of the examples that we cite as we go through it. If you like this show, if you haven't listened to the podcast yet, this is a good starting episode because it's kind of a sampler pattern for all of the shows we've done so far. So you're going to be able to duck in and out of guests we've had, pick the ones that you like, and go back and listen to those shows. If you're someone who's listened to all of our episodes so far, and I want to give a shout out to people that reach out to us, I'll give a shout out to Jacob DeLeon, I believe I'm pronouncing that right, who runs the Project Spurs Network and website in San Antonio, a big uh, Spurs blog and, and network of websites down in Texas. I know he is a big fan and has looked for some guidance from us. So I want to shout him out. But if you're someone like him who's listened to every show so far, I think you'll also find this really useful because we've had some long form interviews and now we're going to pick out the best parts that you can kind of take away from those first 10 shows. So a, a Cliff's Notes, if you will. A Cliff's Notes. So if you like what you hear now or at the end of the show, remember what to do. Tell two friends, tag us on Twitter, Kyle Scott L at Jay Zernick and at Monetize Media HQ. And I guarantee you, because some readers have done this, listeners have done this and reached out to us. We've had phone calls with them. We've engaged with them on Twitter. If you want to run your business or your idea by us, I promise you at this point, we are not so big that we can't do this. But we have had more listeners in the last few episodes than the first few. So this is a good place to kind of recenter everybody. Uh, without further ado, on to our 10 points. All right, so point one, you have to maintain authenticity with your audience. Now, Jason, for me, this one is probably self-explanatory to many, but I think there are people who either intentionally in the beginning chase page views and maybe monetization strategies earlier than they should. And for other people, it just happens by accident. You don't mean to do it, but sometimes when you see that traffic number go up and you could add a little bit of clickbait or turn a dial somewhere to extract a few pennies out of an audience, it's tempting to do so, especially as you're starting out. So the two examples we have for this are Josh Babbitt 
way back in episode one, who runs the Hacker's Paradise. He talked about how he wasn't going to accept the money for the first two years. And even though he does golf product reviews on his website, which would lend themselves perfect to affiliate money, he doesn't take any affiliate dollars. It's all paid sponsorships with transparent interviews. And then Kent Auslander, which I believe is our second episode, Chaos on YouTube, Madden Gamer, sells his eBooks. He won't use just any Madden YouTuber. There's dozens, if not hundreds of people playing Madden that have big followings on YouTube. He won't promote through them because he said to us, most of them suck in Madden and he doesn't want to see them implement his strategies wrong and thus sour his product. So to me, these are two guys who are really doubling down on what it means to be authentic. But how do you sort of view that level of authenticity that you need to maintain with an audience? Listening to Josh. For me, it was a wake-up call because I was looking at the Hacker's Paradise and you know some of our initial conversations about it. Before we spoke to Josh, I'm like, I wonder why he doesn't do this, and man, what an opportunity. And then hearing him explain why they do it. And then subsequent shows where we've seen this line of authenticity by our podcast guests show up, it really does seem to be the anchor that is here for everybody. And I guess I did not respect that as much before we did this show because as Kyle knows and some of the listeners, I got my thought is funnel, 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 money, money, money. You know, how can we monetize, right? And not that I would go into an inauthentic manner of going after that dollar, but just seeing how quickly some of our guests recognized how beneficial it was not only to their brand, not only to them, but to the bottom line. And that was just glaring here with Josh and with, with Kent, especially to Ken Oslander's approach. Because I thought you had a great question when we had him on about, you know, I see so many Madden videos on YouTube, Kent. You know, wh- why not just have like this massive affiliate program where anybody can just jump in? And it was so important to him, just some regular Joe can't be like, oh, and by the way, I got this, uh, you know, great approach to using the Panthers offense from chaos, you know, and then he goes and implements it in a shitty way. So it really was a great wake up call for us. I think the listeners probably got a ton out of that too. And then in all of our shows so far, it's just a cord of consistency about being authentic. Yeah, it's not BS. The thing for me, I've made mistakes early on with Crossing Broad as well. I talked, I think, on our episode about trying to have an event, you know, when I was like months in at a bowling alley and I thought all these people were going to come out and I spent all this time working on the event when I should have just been focusing on creating content because it compounds. People don't realize it's very hard early, especially in the content creation business because you're not selling a product. There's not like instant revenue on day one. You have to build up some level of audience or traffic before you can even think about making a dollar. And then the minute you get to that level, sometimes it's easy to kind of throw away all the goodwill you've built to start ringing the register. And if there's anything people should take away, it's to stick with it and understand that those efforts will compound and make the dollars you can extract and the audience audience growth that much larger later if you're just dedicated to being transparent with your audience and not souring your product, your brand. The first thing was being anti-clickbait. I'm such, first of all, I'm guilty of like clicking on every clickbait in the world. Oh, you found a UFO outside of Denver? Yeah, I have to see those pictures. Like I'm so bad about it. But the second thing was really, I wanted to be anti that and The most traffic we ever got on our site way back when was based on sort of a clickbait thing, but it wasn't. We got news of a player changing to a different equipment company. We posted that and it took off and that was kind of where it started. But I think it was really just being genuine. And it sounds so cliche and I'm not a cliche guy at all, but 
telling a story from the viewpoint of a passionate golfer, not from a niche golfer that just missed the tour by two strokes. And it started to grow. What I see, Josh, when I go to, to THP, telling Kyle about this the other day, I immediately get a feeling of integrity for what you have on the site. I, I do not feel as if I am being sold to or pushed into a direction of something. You know, and obviously coming from where we have been in our previous business, you know, strong affiliate sides of things and, you know, push, push, push. It was refreshing. It really was. And it was just like, wow, this, you know, I legitimately feel as if, if I'm searching for a review on an iron or a putter or anything, that I'm going to get that result when I, when I dive in. It speaks to your genuine aspect of what you learned very early, I'm sure. Well, it's really twofold. First of all, we take zero affiliate programs. Zero. It's a hard line in the sand. It's not a knock for places that do, but I think it does blur the line a little bit between media and salesperson. You know, if uh, there's companies who come to us every day, if you sell our product, we'll get $9 per thing. I'm not interested. If you want content created around your product, features, things like that, I'm happy to do so. But that's something completely different. But the affiliate program thing was something we did hard and fast. And I'll kind of go back a little bit because what the heck, I'm always long-winded. When we said early on that we would take zero advertising dollars, we really meant it. And I remember sitting on the couch next to my wife who runs this place behind the scenes. And we got a call from a company and said, listen, we want to be an ad sponsor. And I said, okay, you know, what's the budget and things like that. And she threw, throws out a number and I said, at this time, we're just not taking advertising. We're going to wait a full two years. And we were like one month short of that. And I hang up the phone and my wife says, call her back. <laughs> and we were short on cash, I guess, at that point. And she says, you need to call her back and make that happen. And I did about 15 minutes later and that budget went down by about 50%. Yep. So this woman who's no longer in golf by the name of Brooke, was calling from the parent company of Cleveland Golf. And she said, we want to be a partner of yours. We like what you're doing. And we ended up doing that. And that kind of opened the floodgates when people saw that because the banner ad world is something that I really struggle from a common sense thing to understand. Now, we have banner ads all over our site, some from partners, some from Google ads and things like that. But the success rate that you're paying very high amounts of money for is like at best half a percentage point. And I just don't understand from a marketing standpoint, I know there's budgets and you have to spend that money, why that's there. I think it's more validation for the website than it is the company who's doing it, especially with the ad blockers that exist nowadays. So that part was a little bit about the story of the monetization of where we ended up being. And obviously we have 38 partners, I think right now. We call them partners, not sponsors, because it really is a two-way street with our event platform that takes place in part of it and some other things. But it's really been a, quite the journey on that side. I have a background in sports blogging and I hit a point about four years in where I was doing almost all the content with like one other person chipping in and we would get, I guess, similar to video games, like sports are, are passion for people and there's a lot of people who want to write about sports and they're happy to do it for free. But it's like, unless you're paying someone or like a good rate on a consistent basis, the reliability, like you just can't count on it. It's nice to have it, but you just can't count on it. So it's, it, I see a lot of similarities there. And I know like once we've hired our first full-time content person, it really changed the game because then we could focus on those things 
like growing the audience, you know, not just spending all day doing the content, but like growing the business part of it and, mm-hmm. and things like that. Definitely. So in terms of growth, like have you thought about bringing on like other YouTubers as affiliates? I know you, you guys said you have one who's listed on the website, but have you thought about opening this up to, I imagine there's a very long tail of people who are playing Madden and creating Madden content on YouTube and maybe some of them are getting 500 views, 1,000, 5,000 views, but like if you total them all up and they were all mentioning, hey, I learned this from Hot Route Tips, you know, have you guys thought about that? Yeah, definitely. So there was actually one guy that we really, really want as an affiliate. He fit perfectly with us with the same, like that competitive player fan base. Another website actually beat us out for him. So, but yeah, we that's definitely something we thought about. Now we want to make sure we're picking the right people that are that have like a similar audience. Cause like there's people that will watch Madden YouTubers just for like their entertainment, their fun, but they're like the actual YouTuber isn't a great player and they don't really care about that. So it's almost a waste for us to, to get someone to plug the website for an audience that just doesn't care about getting better, right? So we need to pick the right people. And then also the other thing is that there's already so many that are already affiliated with their own sites, whether it's they have started in the last few years since we've started, whether they're making their own content or they've just gotten, we've just gotten beaten out by other sites. So something we've definitely wanted to do, but just haven't really find, found the right person outside of the one main affiliate we already have. All right, so number two, setting time limits with yourself, particularly in this case, to cap the downside of risk in doing what you're doing. Most people, when you start a content creation business, you're not, as we just talked about, you're not making money right away. Or you will reach a point where something goes wrong with the business and you have to band-aid it, find a solution, find a new model. Because content creation doesn't really require a specific business model, you might have to switch along the way. And one of the things that I think people should take away, both from the episode, Jason, where you interviewed me, and the most recent one we had with Adam Vasquez, is when I lost all of my revenue in the spring of, late winter, early spring of April 2017, having a sports site, I gave myself about four or five months until the end of that summer, until football season started started to try in earnest to figure it out. And I knew at that point I'd either have to go get a real job and just focus on the football content and use it as side income or just stop doing it altogether because I wouldn't be able to do it in earnest if I was trying to recreate a business model and cover football adequately. So I set a time limit. I had a backstop. I may have lost money for four or five months, but I had a backstop. Adam Vasquez in his episode talked about he left his job without even a plan exactly on what sort of digital marketing business he was going to build. And I think he says it was in the first half of the year and he gave himself until the end of the year. So for me, this is always about capping the downside. When you take a risk, you calculate it, you know that it could fail, but if you give yourself four or six months, you gotta know ahead of time that you're gonna stop the bleeding at that point if it doesn't go well. And sure enough, I think those time limits also help compel action and force people to get things done more quickly that you know you're just not gonna open-ended you know, hemorrhage money or opportunity or income or anything like that. How do you view it? I think setting time limits can come in to the picture at various parts of your entrepreneurial journey or whatever new project you're on, or whatever. So in, you know, in the beginning, when you're starting out, obviously setting one. If you stumble upon something, like in your case, where things just begin to go wrong, almost kind of like that one more day approach, or one more month approach. You know, Not quitting, but saying, I have to have an actionable plan now that something kind of has gone off course. If I have an audience, and I'm trying to monetize it, the worst case scenario would be for someone like me, and I think some of our listeners probably are like me, 
where I will fall into a busy work like mentality or routine where I've kind of hit a steady state of revenue and it's like, okay, well, you know, I'm working and this is what I'm doing. And I think when you set time limits on things, it allows you to have a ceiling to break through or to fall through. And that is something that as a younger person, I would have never done. But now seeing what we've gone through and hearing these stories and hearing your story, I think no matter where you are in your business, you should have some set of time limits on what activities are happening in that business, good or bad. Almost like milestones to create tension around what you're doing. Because yep. uh, a lot of these businesses, you're, people listening, I'm sure, are mostly self-employed, doing this as a side hustle, or the person running an operation. And when you're in that position, it's not like a regular job. Someone doesn't give you a deadline. You almost have to set your own deadlines. So yeah, I think we're in total agreement here how important these are. So that was, you know, that was definitely the moment where you're like, well, this, this is it. So that's rock bottom. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty, you know, it's only five years ago, but I figured, all right, well, I gotta, I'm going to fight for this, right? Like it's, it's, I'm not just going to give up on it. Let me give it four months. I could, I can get by for a few months if I figure it out. This is a very common thing to pick a timeline to, oh, a deadline to give yourself to get something going. It's, I feel like very successful people do this. They say it's got to be this or I'm going to go try something different. Yeah. So I, I think that was April. It was conference was in April. I got rugged by Google in February. So for a, and I flailed for a month. And then I was like, all right, I got to let go of the person in April. And that was when I was like, I got, I basically give myself the summer to figure it out, right? Football season get, got busy for that sort of business. And I was like, I need to have a plan because you need to do a lot of content during football season in a city like Philadelphia when you run this sort of a website. And now I'm the only content person. I've lost my only other writer. So I was like, I'll figure it out over the summer. So I would go days at a time over the summer with no new content on the site. And for everything we just talked about, you'll know how that was like a thing. I pried it every nine o'clock every weekday. In a minimum, we would do three posts a day on a slow day. So I was like, I got to figure it out. So I found a couple of guys who were readers of the sites, Jeff and Mike, who you know, and they liked the site. And I said, hey, like it needs some money, right? I put something on the website in passing. They both reached out to me. And I was like, what if we, this is right before the athletic got big. What if you guys invested some money? We tried to hire some notable like Philly writers and bloggers who have their own following and we create a subscription product. And this is right before this is like socially acceptable. There weren't the tools like Beehive and Ghost and Stripe, you know, to really make this work at the time. It wasn't easy to implement, but I was like, let's figure it out. So spent the whole summer kind of piecing this together these guys kick in a relatively small amount of money to give me about six months of runway to hire a few people, a full-timer, some contractors, and launch a subscription version of the site that fall and pocket the profits for me so I could live. You know, So that happens, and uh, we get the team that is on the site today, Kevin Kincaid, Rush Joy, Bob Wankel, you know, Anthony Sanfilippo. These guys are still with the site, but what they didn't know at the time was I only had enough money to pay them for six months, right? How big is the overall team? Seven people. Seven, seven full-time people is no joke. Yeah, for us, it's cool, man. Like, I don't think I ever would have thought we were... I was just hoping to get to Christmas. I quit in, uh, quit, <laughs> quit in May. I was hoping to get to Christmas that year. And yeah, to have seven people is something that we're pretty proud of. You should be. That's another trend. Jason, you mentioned this on our last episode. You know, successful people set a timeline. 
right? You're going to do something you said from May until Christmas, you know, I was in a similar boat and I gave myself four months and it's like, you have to know your limit. It's like almost capping your downside on to go back to the beginning of our conversation here. When you're taking that leap, you take the risk, but you got to cap the downside somewhere if you totally screw it up. Yeah, that's a great point. That's something that we did at a few levels. We really don't do a ton of like forward looking, like five-year planning, stuff like that. I mean, we've only existed for five years, but, but we did do that. And that's something that I think was really powerful for us. Mentally, I was like, okay, I have to like see progress by Christmas or run back and be like, please forgive me. But we really set like, okay, so we're going to give ourselves three years to make this into something past like, like I said, a France, fancy freelance company. And right at our third year, our third year was right when COVID began to happen. We had just seen a huge spike in new clients and things like that. And then people got scared. And so then we saw a bunch of people bail, but then COVID, everybody needed to figure out how to create remotely. And so all of a sudden our service was really in vogue again. So it's just interesting. Obviously we had nothing to do with timing all of that, but just having those timeframes in place, I think help you be aware of opportunities inside of that. Okay, number three must be willing to take the leap. And I, maybe another thread we've identified here is that content creator businesses don't always have an obvious business model. If you start out only as an affiliate or as a subscription, then maybe, yeah, from day one, you have a business. But usually you're creating the content first, which means no money. And you gotta be willing at some point to leave a full-time job if you really wanna pursue this to scale it. I'm gonna let you talk about this one because I think you have the most hair-raising story of any of our guests. And then I'll, I'll kind of chime in and maybe we'll play the clip of uh, Josh Babbitt and Adam Vasquez as well. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think taking the leap, before I get into the, I'll make the story brief. When you do take the leap, sometimes it's as much about how bad your current situation is and not about how great the opportunity is, right? So in my situation, and certainly go back, guys and girls, and listen to when Kyle interviewed me, it is not normal to you know, have your wife be five months pregnant and she walks in from work and you're sitting there and you tell her that you just quit your job and, hey, listen, you're just going to have to trust me. I've got a really good idea about how I'm going to make money moving forward. It's definitely abnormal. But in my case, it was I just absolutely hated being a pharmaceutical rep after 10 years, and I just couldn't fathom waking up and doing that anymore. Now, granted, I mean, I know it's a good job, but for me, it had hit its wall, and I had bigger aspirations in life. Somebody else may be in a decent situation, but they have got just an amazing idea or whatever it is, an opportunity comes to them. Taking this leap, as we have stated, especially in that podcast, if you're single, boy, it's a lot easier. There's so much time to be able to figure out something and fix something if it goes wrong. If you're married with kids, it's a whole nother thing. And you have to have agreement, understanding, a process. You know, you're now in a team setting with someone as you're taking that leap. And you know, we hear that Josh went through it, I went through it, Adam went through it. Each, all three of us in these examples that you're here had a partner that was able to support them and get them through this process to the other side where there was great success. So I think that's a really big part of it as well when you take that leap. That's a good point. You know, you say it's easier when you're single, and yet the three examples we have on the show are all, all people who are married. And by the way, I think there's a lot of entrepreneur podcasts, websites, Instagram accounts that preach, quit your job, go do your own thing. I, I, I think we should be clear here. I'm not telling you you should quit your job if you don't have a plan, right? But to your point, 
There is truly never, I've heard this saying in some version before, a great time. There is never a perfect time to quit your job, quit guaranteed income. There's never a perfect time to have a child, right? Anyone who's had a kid understands that there's no point in your life are you going to look at the next you know, nine months of pregnancy plus the first year and a half of child rearing as like, hey, I don't need to do anything for the next two years, right? That, but you figure it out. You know, if someone gets pregnant, even if you're planning on it, you got work events, life events, things to do where you're just going to have to deal with it. And I think that's what we're saying here is if you have a plan, have something you want to do, you feel strongly about or are starting to get some traction, understand that you have to take a leap at some point and know that it doesn't have to be perfect. And I, frankly, I think this plays in really nicely with our last point, which was setting a time limit. You cap the downside. You're going to do it. Do it for six months or for a year. Have some savings. Or if you need just a little bit of income, you know, the beauty of now is you can go deliver for DoorDash or Uber Eats or drive an Uber. And look, I know none of those things are like, you know, probably for most people listening to this, ideal careers, but they may be able to give you a backstop of income while you figure this out at your own leisure. So those luxuries didn't always exist in the world. So it's good to have them. Another last point, quote I recently saw on Twitter was if if someone told you you had only $80 to spend ever, you would be really thoughtful about every single dollar you spent. And so many people, when it comes to quitting your job or taking a leap or a chance or a business opportunity, say, there's always next year. They're always next year. And if you think about it in the construct of I have $80, would I really just be wasteful of $1 if I only ever had $80? The answer is no. So if you only have, you know, the average American 80 years to live, should you be wasteful of another year? Um, It's a good food for thought. So I've done a lot of different things in my life, but only a couple of different careers. But I have family members involved in the internet and things like that. When I gotten out of a previous business, I was an avid golfer and used to play a lot. And I was going online and looking for information because my then fiance, now wife and business partner, she wanted to take up the game. And I was looking for information on clubs. And everything I came across was when you do a deep dive, because I tend to do that, whether I'm buying a television or anything else, I couldn't find the information I was looking for outside of user spots in message boards and things like that. And I'd never been a message board person. I'd never even been a member of a message board. And I started looking around, and this is long before the Reddits of the world, or at least were popular, and I couldn't find anything that I really thought was, that fit me and my personality, which is sometimes bold, sometimes subdued, but a little more, I don't want to call it intellectual, because that comes off as egotistical, and it's not meant that way, but a little more even-keeled. The internet wasn't this crazy, I like puppies, therefore I'm going to kick the person who likes cats kind of place like it is now. It was more, you know, everyday conversation. So I started looking around. I couldn't find that. And I decided to do was go on a whim and start it. We had some savings saved up and we did it. And here we are, good Lord, 15 years later, still doing it. Did you jump in full time right away? Yes. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And I to go a step further, we jumped in full time not knowing anything about computers, anything about the internet, anything about web design. WordPress really was just in its infancy. You know, it Looking back, wow, that was really not a great decision, but you know, it worked out. What we tried to do was go with gut instinct, be the opposite of what we thought the world was, which was firing off an email with made up statistics saying, I do this, I reach this, and instead be honest with companies that we're in growth mode. We are going to put our money behind it. We're learning as we go, but work with us 
and we're not going to charge you any money. And for the first two years, we took zero advertising dollars and had zero Google ads and proved ourselves to where we could be a partner of an unbiased source and kind of run with that. There's some misnomers in the I'll call it the review. I'm doing finger quotes, even though a lot of people are listening to this. <laughs> you know, in the world of reviews that you are paid to write what you are and do this and that. And I can tell you in 15 years, not one time has any company ever said, write this or don't write that. It's never happened. And I keep waiting for it to happen, but it's never happened. Number four, you should care about having the right audience and not the biggest audience. So we learned this, I think from a number of guests, but the ones that stood out to me were Jason Barrett, who is the founder of Barrett Sports Media, and Alexis Grant, who founded They Got Acquired and some other businesses along the way. In Jason Barrett's case, he writes a sports media website that has appealed to both sports fans who wanna know where their favorite personalities are going, it is really meant for people in the sports talk radio industry where he has a deep background and deep connections. And the quote that really stuck out, he's like, I'd rather have, rather than a million sports fans or 100,000 sports fans, whatever it was, I'd rather have 50 major market radio station managers engaged because I know not only is my content influential, I can get consulting opportunities off of it, I can host an event, I can charge subscriptions. And I thought that was the smartest distillation way of thinking about having more audience doesn't always equate to the best business opportunity. And then with Alexis Grant, I mean, she's writing on They Got Acquired, her team is writing about small and medium-sized business acquisitions. I think anywhere from like 50,000 to 50 million, 500,000 to 50 million, somewhere in that range. And that will appeal to a lot of eyeballs. And she is finding she's having a lot of success with just scale and selling advertising. But what she really cares about is reaching entrepreneurs and the ability to reach other people in the space who touch M&A, like lawyers, accountants, advisors, brokers, people who buy businesses. There's not as many of those people. You're never going to get probably millions of those people, but your content is going to be really valuable to if there's 10,000 of them or 100,000 of them. And I thought those two did a really nice job of focusing on having the right audience versus just getting every click and eyeball they possibly could. Yeah. And the other part of this that, like I said, learnings are still coming to us, obviously, when we talk to these folks. And I would have never seen the opportunity that Alexis saw with They Got Acquired. I got like none. Like it just would have never hit my radar. And then to see the opportunity that is now coming out of you know, her thought process is amazing. You know, just looking at those acquisitions and then taking the idea of having these reports and this information and this business intelligence that now has so many tentacles out into the business space. I mean, it's fantastic. And it's the same with Jason Barrett, to your point. This is like invaluable information that people with big budgets are looking for. You know, sometimes I just think maybe we, ah, oh, it's not big enough. You know, it's that, that's, it's, you know, maybe we think too big, you know, and then we just got to hit that niche. You say it better than I do, but what do we say? An inch wide and a mile deep. Is that the saying? Yeah. Yeah. That's the saying. I am now convinced more than ever over the past four years and, and how we have worked together, that is how you should approach almost everything. Yeah. And I honestly, I think that's evolved over time. If you think about media and, you know, the show is so much about like taking the learnings of old media, but if you think about media prior to the internet, right, there's TV, radio, newspapers, other mild formats along the way. But at the end of the day, it's only 
tens of radio stations in a market before satellite, then it was hundreds. Same with cable TV. It was like single digits or low 10 to 20 before cable, and then it became like 100. And then newspapers, I mean, forget about it. There's just a few per city. I mean, even if you count like the small freebies, you're talking no more than 10 in even a major market. So you had to have scale. All media had scale because there wasn't that much of it. So if you were the nightly news, you had millions. And I mean, the number of people who used to tune in to the nightly news was astronomical. That's why the the Marrows and the the Cronkites were so influential because so many people consume them. Everything has become more fragmented and the internet has just multiply that by the nth degree. And I I think it's really tough to get anything with scale now, just because anything that is so general that has scale has probably already been covered. And in this case, when you do get deep, there are new business models that avail themselves. It used to be that it was media was just all ad supported, maybe some events, maybe some ancillary things here. But what you're seeing is when you can create a deep niche and the audience is small, but passionate. And as you said, manages a big budget, all of a sudden, all these different business models open themselves up, be it events, be it products, be it subscriptions, you know, be it some hybrid of that, be it a community that pays for, we don't have a clear plan for monetizing this podcast, but I could see a world where you and I could create a teachable course six, 12 months from now. And if our audience get big enough, we will make money off that and provide value to people. And that's a product, you know, that didn't really exist in previous media businesses. So yeah, I think this is the wave of the future, the continued niching of everything. And then, you know, people that can build scale and make millions of dollars in ad revenue will do that too. But I don't think that's the default case. I think that's the exception now. Here's the key, the key difference, I think too, especially you said the word now, numerous times already, relationships, right? So the younger person, the entrepreneurial person thinking about starting a website today, we see it all the time. They are so focused on social media. Oh, I just have to get a following and that's it. It's just going to magically happen for me. And then I'm going to be successful and and it's it's just going to be, you know, magic. But in your case, and I think in many other cases, obviously people who have been successful, it is years upon years of building relationships and hard work put into these things where, yes, it is next to impossible to compete with some of these larger media outlets. But I am sure things get picked up and shared and utilized because of your relationships. What would you say to a younger person who is thinking about, hey, whether it's sports or whether it's any other kind of vertical of starting you know, a, a media type of website, what piece of advice would you give them in the beginning there for them? I would say master your content before anything else. You know, first of all, you touched on relationships. The whole business to me comes down to two things. Can you provide great content? And do you have enough friends in the business that'll hire you? If you have relationships and you have something to bring to the air, or if you're working as a social media manager, or if you're working as a producer, you're probably going to be hired by people. I think, you know, one of the things that a lot, and look, I, I have a great test study. My son's 20. He's in school. He's looking to get in it. And I tell him all the time, I go, you'll get some breaks because I've worked in the business, but you ain't going to stay in a building if you're not really damn good at what you do. That's just getting in the door. Uh, Getting in the door is one thing. You think Joe Buck's on TV calling games because his dad was Jack Buck? No, he's still calling games because he's damn good at calling games. And so you have to be good at what you're bringing. I think too many people get fascinated by that whole part of what you just touched on, Jason, about, you know, I just got to build this brand and I have all these followers. Uh, you know how many people I've seen uh, help stations hire people and there even PDs will get 
caught on this. Like, hey, this guy uh, really good and he's got a following of 25,000 people and he has a podcast I've never heard of, but he's got a big following and I'll go digging through the weeds and I'm like, hey, his podcast page has 60 followers. No one's ever engaged with it. All he did was buy Twitter followers to look good and you bought it because look, to his credit, it worked. You answered his email. At some point, yeah, maybe you get through the circle and get people to look at you first because of a trick like that. Once they look at you, now can you deliver? And you know, like what I look at and the way I've looked at what we do, I know we do niche content. Niche content is not going to play in a mainstream world. Like if we were writing about the Yankees and Mets, the next, we're probably going to have more people just because there's a larger audience for that. So what I looked at is I'd rather reach 50 decision makers than 5,000 fans. No offense, I hope every fan that finds the website enjoys it. But I realize, like, if I can reach the Jimmy Pitaros, the David Fields, those type of people, and they value what we do, we're going to be a service for their business. And if we're a service for their business, they're going to tell other people in their business to want to look at us for potential work. And then, you know, it's about having really good content that serves them. Because if we don't give them great original content, they'll go elsewhere and we won't have much value. So I think it goes back to your question. If you have really good original content to bring to the table and you build relationships and part of that, you should always be building relationships. I see people who only reach out when there's a job open. I go, reach out when there is no job open. How about this? Take the time to send an email to say, hey, I was listening to your morning show. Man, Greg and Boomer are awesome. That segment today on the Rangers was tremendous. Just wanted to tell you I love the station. You guys do great work. Keep doing that because a year from now, when there is an opening and you have built a relationship and people know like, hey, this guy seems like a pretty decent guy and they're going through and there's three jobs open, you have a chance to stand out. Like I used to tell young guys when I was first starting this, I go, first of all, you have an advantage I didn't. When I started, I couldn't podcast. I didn't have YouTube. I didn't have Twitter to build a, a base. I had an email on a website, which thank God that came along because previously I had to send cassettes in the mail only to get a letter telling me, you know, you're not good enough to do this yet. So I had to do all the extra stuff that a lot of these folks today didn't have. And so I would tell them, how are you not following every single decision maker in the business that you want to work in. They're all out there, whether it's on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, go find them. And then when you see them share stuff, take a minute and engage. Like a program director puts out, he's having a course light on a Sunday. Great idea, my man. You earned it. Enjoy. Do that for a while and you watch how quickly people will want to go, hey, this seems like a pretty decent guy I'd want to at least, I don't know if he's the fit, but I'll have a conversation with him because there's a there's a connection established. If only the only time you show up is in someone's inbox when they have something you want, that's not going to help you stand out, in my opinion. A lot of people want these jobs, thousands. What What separates you from anyone else looking for it? Well, I see two obvious demographics. One of them I know well, which is founders. But founders probably only need that information. Like they, they always, we have a lot of people who are building businesses that they don't want to sell immediately, but they might want to sell it eventually. So they just want to learn about this. But in terms of like paying for data, 
you probably only need that at the point of sale or like when you're serious about selling your business. But there's also, there's another demographic and we have a lot of people who read, who, are, who fall into this group too, which are like M&A professionals, people in the space who are going through transactions all the time. Um, lawyers, financial professionals, people who buy businesses, like they have a lot more times when they need to get their hand hands on this kind of data. That's how we're thinking about it. But, you know, I'm hoping that we're kind of starting with the founders, especially because what we're finding is sponsorships have been a really successful part of the business so far, like bigger than I had expected. And they want to reach people who want to sell their businesses. So I think it makes sense to keep focusing on growing that demographic. And then my hope is that we can also end up selling this data to other people that are in the space that you know, have more money and probably more need for it, even than the founders. It's kind of this this issue of you know going wide, you know, and not as deep mm-hmm. with founders, and you get scale and get sponsorships, and then go and narrow but deep with you know the people, the stakeholders in that space. We're always mm-hmm. doing it. We had a guest a couple of shows ago. Uh, Jason Barry runs a site called Barrett Sports Media, and he writes mm-hmm. all about the sports radio industry and. Mm-hmm. His view on it was like, all he wants to do is go deep. He's like, I don't care if I got 10,000 sports fans learning about what's happening in New York radio. I want to reach the 50 market managers. Okay, and number five, you have to be willing to evolve your business model. And really, maybe this should just come down to being flexible. Uh, Use the example of Kenny Coleman, who's the founder of Bourbon Pursuit. He started a bourbon podcast because he liked bourbon and he wanted to talk about it, and then he wanted to learn more from people in the space. And he was supported by people on Patreon, and it was a side project. And they were so good at it and so professional in the way they did it, and they got such good interviews, they built a loyal audience, and they themselves became authority on bourbon. Now, fast forward five, six years, they are taking investment for millions of dollars to distill and age their own whiskey, which won't be available for sale until like the mid-2020s. So they've gone from podcaster, the way many people are with some way to monetize it, to now a heavy capital expenditure business and building their own bourbon brand. Guarantee you that was not on their roadmap when they started the podcast on a lark, but here they are. You, know, you got to identify what you have and sometimes move to the opportunity. I would say from my interview, same, you know, same with me in Crossing Broad. I started a, a sports blog in Philadelphia in 2009. I thought I'd maybe have some apparel revenue. I thought I would sell some ads, maybe do a quizzo or a game watch or a bus trip with, with Phillies fans. And then nine years later, the Supreme Court paves the way for sports betting to be legalized. I wasn't even much of a better, but I knew that sports audience just became a lot more valuable and then started attacking that in a really systematic way as a sports betting affiliate, which allowed me and, and us, Jason, to, at least on my side, make more money in some months than I had almost in the previous eight years of running the site. And wasn't on the roadmap, but you just got to see sometimes what you have and what the opportunity is and be willing to pivot and take it. I think the word here that probably leads to the ability to evolve is risk, right? So you see the business in its infancy, Little Ticket Kenny then starts doing a lot of things on social media. And all of a sudden you, you get feedback and you see this ability, you see this popularity, the juices get flowing and there are now opportunities that you would never have dreamed of because you moved out of your comfort zone a little bit and you took a little bit of a risk and poof, there's a whole new avenue that just appeared. In your case, obviously sports betting came as an outside opportunity, but with where you were with Crossing Broad, and there was some struggles there at some point, seeing that new avenue, you had to take that risk. But you, you wanted to take that risk and evolve to that point because you had kind of gone through everything else. 
you know, listen, go back and listen to that story about the, the Google survey issue that Kyle had with, uh, with the running Crossing Broad. So there has to be at some point a risk, an evaluation, and then you evolve. And you know, it's the only way your business can grow properly. Yeah, and sometimes you also have to be willing to just identify that an opportunity presents itself and you have to take it. You know, the ball bounces your way. You might not be planning to shoot, right? You might be there for, I don't know, you know, use a basketball analogy. You might be on the floor for defense and then someone leaves you wide open for a three and, you know, the ball lands in your lap and you just got to take the shot. There's a book called Smart Cuts, probably written mid like 2010s. And it's about using the position you have to level up to another position. And I probably do a shitty job of explaining that book, but the idea here works. I think in the content creation business, you build an audience and sometimes by virtue of having that audience, some opportunity presents itself that, you know, Kenny Coleman wouldn't have been able to start his own bourbon brand if he didn't have a really good bourbon podcast. I mean, or he would, but it would take him a lot longer. I never would have had the opportunity to be a major significant revenue generating sports betting affiliate if I wasn't sitting on this audience of hundreds of thousands of people in the two states that were set to legalize at first. So sometimes you have to accept that you are sitting on a level above other people who might want to go into that space and you have an opportunity that you can't pass up. The other thing is, I'd say in this case, the willingness to almost kill certain business lines or revenue lines to attack that new opportunity. There's a famous example of, you know, Apple basically killed the iPod for the iPhone, right? But the iPod was the product that more or less saved the company. And they knew by creating a phone, they were gonna kill its use. And sure enough, it worked out. I mean, the iPhone is the, probably the single greatest consumer, selling consumer product in the history of ever, right? So it worked. And in my case, I had a store that was doing mid six figures a year in sales with apparel, but it took up most of my time. And the minute we went into sports betting, you know, that essentially just stopped being a focus. And to this day, almost makes no money now. But you got to be willing to, to your point, make the risk. Sometimes you got to cut off something to attack that new opportunity. So on the sustainability side, yeah, there is, as I mentioned earlier at the top of the show, there is this overwhelming sensation of like, is burnout going to happen? And a lot of that comes because you don't see the ROI, you don't see the followers, you don't see the money coming in, you don't see all this sort of stuff. Um, but you stick at it, you stick with it. At some point, there will be something that flips and starts working your way. For us, it was somebody saying, go start a Patreon. It was doing the first barrel pick. Fred wanted to join. Those are like three potential moments where things just completely turned for us. And you kind of saw the numbers start rising. You saw the money start rolling in. And at some point, yes, you, you start bringing in all this sort of stuff. But as you start bringing on other things, you start doing the barrel pick program. You start trying to figure out how do I keep my paying audience on Patreon always engaged and keeping them informed of everything. Like all that stuff even takes more time commitment. And yes, you have to build it up by yourself until you get to the point where you say, and this is, I had to give a you know, tip of the hat to Ryan on this one is he's always said, you need to hire the right people when you feel like you're overwhelmed with something. And fortunately, one of the great things about building a Patreon community is that you have like-minded individuals that just want to help see you succeed. And they want to be a part of what you're building too. And <laughs> for lack of a better term, we don't have to pay them either. We pay them in whiskey, which is great. Uh, we pay them in whiskey and high fives. Um, so they, you know, we've had the, the ability to bring on people that are taking care of our bail pick program because that alone takes up 10 to 20 hours a week, um, usually, because of scheduling and doing randomizer videos and trying to 
logistics planning. Like it's a lot that goes into it. But you give them access to the some of the same great whiskey and I'll send them a few bottles a year to say thank you. And it's a it's a great relationship that's being built off of it as well. You know, there's somebody else that manages our sticker creation for barrel picks, which if you're not into this whiskey world, you might not know about it. And then we also had the fortunate opportunity is when I'm, I suck at sales. Like I'm terrible at it. I can't sell ad space for anything and I don't like to cold call people. But when Fred came on, he said, hey, I've got this guy that did all the sales for Bourbon and Beyond, which is a, a music festival here in Louisville. And he, he knows all the distilleries and he can help sell ad space. And I said, give me his number. And so now we have somebody that is on a contract basis that all he does is go and sells ad space for us. And that's great because that's revenue that I wouldn't be able to generate on my own because I'm focused more on the content delivery side. So striking those relationships and making sure that we can you know, scale is really the thing that's important to me because that allows me to focus on the podcast, which is for me is like content creation's king, making sure that we are continually bringing in new and innovative ideas to our audience, that they stay captivated, you know, and that is eventually going to feed into our spirits business and our bourbon business because that doesn't exist without the podcast. And so we have to grow the audience that is going to help feed that business that will eventually, you know, help people drink a lot of good whiskey here in the future. We had to figure out a model and we start the subscription model. And because the site was more gossipy, you know, at the time we became more mainstream over the years, but it was still, we were never like deep dive into analytics, right? So we didn't have any one thing that we could like, when you're selling an audience online or a product, it needs to be niche and focused. And we were anything but. We covered all the teams in Philly and it was entertaining information, but none of it was like, it wasn't hardcore for fantasy. It wasn't hardcore for gamblers. It wasn't like hardcore for diehards. It was just like, people passing the time and work. So we had scale, but we didn't have, we always talk about like depth versus breadth. I did not have any depth with any one audience pocket. I just had, so the subscription thing didn't work. We got like 300 subscribers and that wasn't going to cut it. So uh, I'll kind of shut up for a sec, but we didn't have a business model and I had six more months, basically six more months to figure it out. All right. So granted you go from maybe one hot seat to another, where you have a personal situation that is not great, but then you take on employees and investors, and then what was based around that model does not go great. Where are you mentally at this point? You know, and then walk us through those next steps. Yeah. So you'll probably know this about me. Like when I identify a problem or a solution or whatever, like I, I'm all in on it, right? But I can be a touch slow in seeing the problem coming. I see it eventually. I see it, but I usually, I'm like, I'm usually focused on what I'm doing at the moment. And I scan the horizon, like, you know, right before crossing the intersection, right? Instead of, you know, if you're using the crossing broad analogy, like instead of looking to see who's coming at that intersection while I'm a block away, I'm like, as I'm about to cross, I, you know, I turn and look like in business. And so I knew that I had six months to figure it out, but I was just kind of like, all right, I'm back into the content of the site now. And I've always had this view. Alexis mentioned this in our last interview. She always had this view where her life, her business is going to work out. And I've always felt that. I was always like, I'm pretty good at what I do. I will figure it out. I've always been good at just figuring it out. Sometimes at the last minute, you know, I would do school projects like 
the morning they were due. I'd write an eight page paper at like 4 a.m., right? I was just good at figuring things out. And that's, you know, it's not the best trait to have. You know, sometimes it can be good, but I wasn't thinking. I was like, all right, it's the fall. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. I'm recovering football. The site's good. The quality is great. The audience is growing. We still don't have the right business model, but like, okay, this is good. We have a good product. Something good will happen. <laughs> so I had started over that last year as one of the fallback options. Instead of being a t-shirt affiliate, I saw how many shirts the site could sell when there was something interesting, when there was a cool shirt, a cool moment. So I built out our own Shopify store. I had found a supplier, a local supplier that instead of drop shipping the shirts, we would literally, part of the deal when my wife left her job was she was gonna help fulfill the shirts. Because before I had been an affiliate and I had done some drop shipping, we'd create a funny t-shirt. When you do that, you only get like $5 a shirt you sell because you know all the charges are in the, you pay for drop shipping, right? But I found a local supplier, we were selling t-shirts for $25. They would make them you know, between six and $8 a shirt, right? Shipping, we would charge shipping. So we would be able to profit like 15 to $20 a shirt we could sell if we just mailed them out on our own. Well, that was sustainable and that was part of that like small mix of revenue that I hadn't lost when we were doing 100 t-shirts a month or something like that, right? Well, I had set this up. I had this model. We had a Shopify store. We had a supplier for t-shirts. And this is, you know, luck. Sometimes you get the ball bouncing in your court. The Eagles, the end of 2017, the Eagles are really good that year. You know, at one point they're like 10 and one. I don't know. They're looking like they're going to go to the Super Bowl. And I know, you know, in this, the way sports apparel works is you sell a lot when teams are good and you sell none when they're bad, right? Especially we had these unlicensed kind of funny slogan-y type t-shirts. So they're about to go, you know, it's late December. I'm thinking, all right, we're starting to sell more shirts. They're going to make a playoff run. We got some cool, funny ideas. This will buy us another six months. Carson Wentz, their starting quarterback, tears his ACL right before Christmas. I'm like, well, that's screwed. Well, you know, to anyone who's a sports fan, the Eagles somehow overcome that they go on to win the Super Bowl. And along the way, they just, a number of these like obvious t-shirt examples come up. One of the players wears a dog mask on the field because they're underdogs. A guy gives a speech at the parade in a, in a goofy clown costume, right? All of these things that are like instant t-shirt ideas. So right as our six months is about to run out, thankfully I had set up, you know, I'd press the right button on setting up the Shopify store we sell, you know, like, I don't know, like half a million dollars worth of t-shirts in the span of six weeks after the Super Bowl. Three fifty, four hundred thousand dollars worth of shirts in six weeks, uh, and then more throughout the rest of the year. Okay, so that was part one of our 10 learnings, 10 actionable insights from our first 10 episodes. Jason, what do we have coming up on part two? I want to give you some of these learnings for part two. I think this is going to get your attention once you make you want to uh, tune back in. So sometimes you have to make shark moves. There's going to be some good ones there. Embracing doubt. I think that's uh, common with all of us. Consistency is the key. Number nine here for part two will be automate the mundane time sucks. That's a good one there. And uh, number uh, 10, which will be uh, number five in part two, must be willing to learn from your mistakes. So if you liked what you heard here, we're going to release that episode a couple of days after this one. It won't be on the normal week cadence. So that will be part two of our 10 actionable insights from the first 10 episodes. Remember, if you like these, if you found any one, even 
a part of any one of these five remotely interesting or useful, do two things. Tell two friends about this podcast who are in the space, who have their own audience, who might find this content interesting. And if you tag them on Twitter, at Kyle Scott L, at Jay Zernick, or at Monetize Media HQ, and you tell us the two friends you told, we will give you our time. You can ask about your business idea. We will shout you out on the show. We promise to engage with you. So please do that. And Jason, what else should they do if they really like this show? Wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, please make sure to give us a five-star rating. And make sure to download and subscribe to the Monetize Media Podcast. Thanks for listening. 